You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. of Israel, more wicked than any other king. He has forsaken the Lord God, Jehovah, and he went after foreign gods, namely Baal. But God never gave up on him. God never gave up on him. And my word to you today, folks, is no matter where you are, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter how far you might think you're away from God, God has not given up on you. Do you ever feel like your sin is just too terrible for God to love you or use you in this world? Well, today, Pastor Dave wants to encourage you to remember God will never give up on you. He'll pursue you and forgive you of any sin the moment you turn to Him in faith. And He'll work through you to do amazing things in this world. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of 1 Kings chapter 20 as he begins his message. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Coming to the end of First Kings. So let's bow our hearts before our gracious Lord one more time in prayer. Ah, gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, what a blessing it is to be able to look you in the eye and tell you how wonderful you are and how beautiful you are and how you continue to pour your love out upon us day after day, week after week, Lord. It's just incredible the way you continue to love us, Father God. And even when I'm unlovable, Lord, your love continues to pour towards me, Father God. What a blessing you are. What a blessing it is, Lord. It's just incredible. Now, Lord, we ask that you would just open up our hearts that we might receive today anything that you might have on your agenda as we go through your word. Love studying your word line by line, verse upon verse. I love what you do in my heart as we study your word. And now, Lord, I ask that you would help me to present this clearly to your children, Lord. Help me to step out of the way and, Holy Spirit, speak boldly. Speak boldly to your children today. Let us glean from this those things that you want each of us to know individually. Thank you, Lord, for the saints that you've brought here tonight. Bless them abundantly. Thank you, Lord, for those who are watching online. Thank you, Lord, for all you do and all you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've been studying Ahab, and Ahab was a very weak and evil man. When we first met him, back in 1 Kings 16, verse 30, we see that he was a man who did more evil in the sight of the Lord than anybody else who came before him. Right away, that should tell you something about this guy. He did more evil than anybody else who came before him. And as we continue now in these last several chapters of 1 Kings, we're going to see a man who basically destroys himself. He destroys his family, all because he allowed his wife, Jezebel, to turn him into a monster. She turned his heart away from the Lord God, Jehovah, and turned his heart toward a foreign god, Baal in particular. He even went so far as to make a temple for Baal. So he did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And in these final chapters of 1 Kings, four events are going to happen in his life. And had he been rightly related to the Lord, had he been rightly connected to the Lord, I believe that these things would have turned out differently for him. But he couldn't help himself because he was a slave to sin. Ahab was a slave to sin. And you know what the wages of sin are? Death. Ahab will eventually pay his debt to God. He will eventually pay his debt to God. But to Ahab's credit, during these events that we're going to study in the next several weeks, he does show a glimmer of spirituality. There's a small glimmer, brief as it is, of spirituality. And and even more than that, in, in these several chapters, we get a better glimpse and a pure glimpse of the grace of God that is poured out upon him. The grace of God which so freely comes not only to him, but has come to all of us as well. We studied last week that after the death of the prophets of Baal, Elijah's life was threatened by Jezebel. He ran away and hid in a cave and cried out to God, escaping her grasp. But at the end of chapter 19, Elijah meets his protege, Elisha. And he calls Elisha into ministry. But as we move into the chapter 20, it appears that both Elijah and Elisha are nowhere around. They seem to be out of the picture once again. You know how Elijah just pops in and pops out. So, you know, he's not in the picture right now. The kingdom of Israel had just come out of a three and a half year drought, a three and a half year famine, and they had low supplies. The men were weak, and the whole kingdom was suffering because of this horrible famine that had befallen them. They were lacking in supplies. I mean, they had to grow grain again. They had basically nothing to eat. It was a horrible, horrible famine. You remember in last week's study, Ahab and Obadiah went out looking for grass to feed the animals? So this was a horrible time. An adversary arises. His name is Ben-Hadad. He sees a vulnerability. He sees an opening here. His motto was, hit them when they're down. And he chooses to attack. He chooses to attack and take advantage of the weakened state of Israel. Now remember when I say Israel, I'm talking about the northern kingdom. Let's read the first 11 verses. Verse 1, now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him, with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Remember Samaria being a name for the northern kingdom of Israel also. Then he sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, and all that I have are yours. Then the messenger came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But... I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put in their hands and take it. 
So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent me to, for my wives and children, my silver and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore, he said to the messengers of King Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you sent for you to you or your servant for the first time I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful of each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts his on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. <laughs> Ben-Hadad. It's the title of the reigning king of Aram, Syria. Ben-Hadad simply means sons of Hadad. Hadad, or Adad, was a god of storm and thunder. And it was a common that the kings and each son would reign as the god of that time. But in the Bible, Ben-Hadad, or the king of Aram, is mentioned eight times. In 1 Kings 15, 8, Ben-Hadad is designated as the, sons of the, uh, as the son of the son of Tamburim, the son of Herzrum. In this passage, King Asha of Judah makes a treaty with Ben-Hadad to help protect him against the king of Israel, who was threatening Judah. Ben-Hadad sent soldiers against Israel and King Basha and conquered the number of towns, bringing some relief. We studied that. But here in 1 Kings 20, Ben-Hadad once again attacks the northern kingdom of Israel. Where is Ahab now the king? It is possible that this same Ben-Hadad who attacked in 1 Kings 15 is him, or it could be his son, Ben-Hadad II. And then there was Ben-Hadad III. But it seems that Ben-Hadad took a play out of Solomon's playbook. What did he do? He put rulers and kings over all of the cities and providences, and thus you had 30 kings. You had 30 guys. So we see from verses 2 and 3 that Ben-Hadad makes demands. He wants everything, all of Ahab's wealth, and his family. Ahab agrees. Ahab agrees, but then Hadad ups the ante, wanting even more. In other words, he's going to send his men in, and they're going to take anything that they want, and they're going to look at Ahab's eyes, and if he longs for it, they'll take it. Ahab finally does a smart thing. He calls for the elders. He calls for the people of Israel and presents it to them, and they said, no way. Do not listen nor consent. Why? Because if they wanted to remain a kingdom at all, they had to resist this threat. The entire kingdom was in danger of collapsing and being overrun by this Ben-Hadad. When the message got back to Ben-Hadad, he was partying. He was drunk. He was having a good time. And he got mad and he said, if you don't do this, we're going to annihilate you. We're going to come up and we're going to wipe you out. We're going to take you out and you'll never ever have it again. I love Ahab's response. Ahab's response. Let's read it. Let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Don't count your chickens until they hatch. Don't count your chickens until they hatch, Benadad. Don't be so hasty to say you're going to beat us. You're going to take care of us. You may be suited up for the game, but that don't mean you're going to play. Get ready here. So, that sets the scene for what's going to happen now. Let's look 12 to 21. 
And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post and said to the servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. Suddenly, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the providences. And then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you. Then he mustered the young leaders of the providences, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. And the young leaders of the providences went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol, and they told him, saying, Men are coming of Samaria. So he said, If they come out for peace, take them alive. If they come out for war, take them alive. Then these, two young, then these young leaders of the providences went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Assyria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. Wow. This is pretty cool. In these verses, you see God promises Ahab something. Ahab has absolutely nothing to stand on. He's got a few measly men, but that's all the Lord needs. The Lord doesn't need a lot to back him up. Remember Gideon? Remember Gideon and all the men he had? You have too many. You have too many. He ended up with 300 middle-aged bald guys. They took him out. He was greatly outnumbered, but God sends a message of hope. See all these armies that are lined up against you? God will deliver them to you today. I love that. God will deliver them to you today. Why? Well, for us. But it takes me back to Romans 8.37. Yet in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. We sang, we will not be overtaken. We will not be overcome. The same power in us, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, lives in us. And that is our source. And I love this part. And here we see the most wicked king to date of Israel. More wicked than any other king. He has forsaken the Lord God, Jehovah, and he went after foreign gods, namely Baal. But God never gave up on him. God never gave up on him. And my word to you today, folks, is no matter where you are, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter how far you might think you're away from God, God has not given up on you. God has not given up on you. What was neat about this is he wasn't doing this because Ahab deserved it. If anything, Ahab deserved to be wiped out. Ahab deserved to be completely wiped out. He was doing it because he wanted his name to be honored among all the people of Israel. What would you call this? Pride on Ahab's part, but what about God's part? Grace. God's grace. What a beautiful picture. It's probably one of the most important concepts in the entire Bible. In the Bible, it's mostly clearly expressed in the promises of God revealed to us and embodied for us in Jesus Christ. This grace that God has given us. Grace is the love of God shown to the unlovable. 
Grace is the love of God shown to them. It's the peace of God given to the restless. It's God's unmerited favor. Listen to what some of these really big theologians said about God's grace. Grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Grace is God reaching down to the people who are in rebellion against him. Grace is unconditional love towards a person who does not deserve it. Wow. Grace is the most needed, and unfortunately or fortunately, it's best understood in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our suffering, and in the midst of our brokenness. We live in a world earning, deserving, and merit of judgment. That is why everyone wants and needs grace. Why? Judgment kills. Grace makes you alive. The grace of God has made you alive. The shorthand word for grace is mercy, not merit. Grace is the optimum of karma. Karma? It's the opposite of karma. Which is Karma is getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. And not getting what you do deserve. Christianity teaches us that we deserve death with absolutely no hope of resurrection. But grace teaches us differently. Grace is not about us. Grace is fundamentally the word about God. His uncoursed initiative and persuasive, extravagant demonstrations of care and favor. You know, I didn't make that up. I read that someplace that I had to write it down. His God's uncoerced initiative and pervasive, extravagant demonstrations of care and favor. I love that. God's grace. One writer I said, he said, in grace, God gives nothing less than himself. Grace then is not a third thing or a substance mediating between God and sinners, but it's Jesus Christ dying on a cross. Jesus Christ dying on a cross for all mankind. That is what grace looks like. Christians live every day by the grace of God. We receive forgiveness according to the riches of the grace of God. Grace drives our sanctification. Paul tells us that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. He said that in Titus 2.11. Spiritual growth doesn't happen overnight. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter said in 2.18. Grace transforms our desires, our motivations, and our behaviors. In fact, God's grace grounds and empowers everything we do in the Christian life. It empowers and grounds every single thing we do in the Christian life. It's our identity. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In 1 Corinthians 1.10. It is our identity. It's our standing before God in Romans 5, 2, in this grace in which we can stand. It's our behavior. We behaved in the world by the grace of God, 2 Corinthians 2, 12. It's our living. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 17. By the grace of life, 1 Peter 1, 7. Our holiness is grace. God has called us to a holy calling because of his own purpose and grace. 2 Timothy 2.9. Grace is our strength for living. Be strengthened by the grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.1. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Hebrews 13.9. Grace is our way of speaking. Let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt. Colossians 4.6. Grace is our serving. Serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
1 Peter 1.10. Grace is our sufficiency. 2 Corinthians 2.9. My grace is sufficient for you. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 2.9. Grace is our responsibility to difficulty and suffering. We get grace to help in the time of need as we come into the throne room of grace, Hebrews 4.16. And when you have suffered for a little while, praise God, it's a little while, Peter, the God of all grace will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, 1 Peter 1.10. Praise God, it's just a little while. Grace is our participation in the mission of God. It's our participation in the mission as recipients of grace. We, we are privileged to serve as agents of his grace. Believers receive grace, it says in Acts eleven twenty three. We're encouraged to continue in grace, it says in Acts thirteen forty three. We are called to testify of the grace of God in Acts twenty twenty four. John twenty twenty one. Jesus says, "As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you." God's mission is to the entire world. Grace is our future. God and his grace is everlasting. It says in 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace is our hope beyond death. Grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.21. The gospel is all about the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul called it the gospel of grace of God, Acts 20, 24, and the word of grace in Acts 14, 3. The gospel of grace of God is the message everyone needs. It is the message that everyone needs. The word of grace is proclaimed on every single page of the Bible, every single page of the Bible, and it's ultimately revealed in Jesus Christ. The last verse of the Bible summarizes it from Genesis to Revelation. The grace of our Lord be with you all. Through Jesus, we've received grace upon grace, John 1.16. For me, I need to take you back to my, one of my most favorite scriptures, which to me is the epitome of grace. For me. Might not be for you, but for me it is. I'll read it to you. Some of you might even know where I'm going. Ephesians 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses of sin in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love in which we loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man can boast. You are assured. You've been learning from the book of 1 Kings with Pastor Dave Shank on A Sure Hope. Have you ever found yourself in a place like King Solomon where the temptations of the world really had a grip on you? With all the gimmicks of the world, it's not surprising 
It's also not surprising that you're not the only one. Many struggle with the temptation of letting worldly things lead them rather than let the things of the Lord lead. But there is hope. Just as Solomon came to recognize that all his women, wealth, and wisdom wasn't what really mattered, you too can learn that things of the world are deceiving. So rather than put your hope and faith in the things that pass away, put your hope and faith in the one who's everlasting. God is constant, he is faithful, and he will never pass away. If you missed any part of today's teachings or you'd like to listen to additional messages from Pastor Dave, visit AssureHopeRadio.com. Perhaps as you are listening, you realize that you have some questions about faith and maybe even about salvation. We'd be happy to talk with you and provide some resources to answer your questions. Give us a call at 609-884-5821. Again, that's 609-884-5821. You can also click on the Jesus tab at AssureHopeRadio.com. This will provide you with a succinct picture of who Jesus is and how he can change your life. Thank you again for taking the time to learn about God's word today. We hope you'll join us again next time on A Sure Hope.